Thank you, Bill. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning, we'll again turn to the book of Acts and to chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14 as Pastor Bruce continues his uh, sermon series out of Acts. If you can find it on your pew Bible, page 627. Again, we'll be reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward the heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that through your word this morning, and through the message that Pastor Bruce brings, God, that you would reveal to us, God, your power, God, that you would unite us in one accord, that God, as we go out, we can preach your gospel to those who need to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Kirk, for leading us in our scripture reading. As he mentioned, we are continuing in our series uh, through the book of Acts, and a uh, series we're simply calling Unstoppable, Daring to Be the Church on Mission. The reason we're calling it that is because when you look at the church in the book of Acts here, and you kind of study them through the book, you see that they were an unstoppable church. They were unstoppable in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem, where they are now here in chapter 1, to the ends of the earth. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be, is a, a church on mission that's an unstoppable force for God. With that challenge in mind, let's begin with a question. That question is coming up on the screen, it's a question in your notes, and it's this question, what is the greatest need of our church today? What is the greatest need of our church today? Is it a location with better visibility and easier accessibility? 
Well, no, but when it snows, it sure would be nice, right? It'd be nice to have a flat road that leads to our church when there's snow and ice. A little bit easier accessibility. It'd be nice to be on a major thoroughfare, a highway, where, where thousands of people could see where we're located instead of having to give them really precise directions on how to get here. You really do need a map app to find our church. But that's not our greatest need. Is, is our greatest need more money? No, although more money would allow us to do more ministry. Perhaps our greatest need is to remodel this auditorium. No, although it desperately needs to be remodeled, which will take more money, is it to rename our church? Is that our greatest need? No, although we do need to change the name of our church. Perhaps our greatest need is to find somebody to play these drums up here that have been sitting empty for two years now. Anybody know how to play the drums? Come see me. Come see Todd. If you know how to play the drums, we will stick you right there next Sunday. Maybe not that fast, but pretty fast. But that's still not our greatest need. Perhaps our greatest need is to update our website and and make it mobile friendly. No, that's not our greatest need, but we do need to do that. In fact, that's in the works even this year. Perhaps our greatest need is to buy a new van or buy a shuttle bus to haul people around, kids, trek, you know, want us and whatnot, but no, that's not our greatest need. Although we will need, probably sooner than later, to address replacing a van or two. Through all these are needs that we have in our church. But listen, they are not our greatest need. So then, what is our greatest need as a church today? I would propose to you this. Our greatest need is simply the power of of God unleashed on our church. That is our greatest need. Maybe we're asking why. So that we may continue the mission that Jesus began. We need the power of God's Spirit so that we can be bold, confident, and fearless in proclaiming the Gospel to people here in Kansas City and beyond all over the world. Why do we need God's power? Because, let's be honest, we're nothing without God and His power. We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. In fact, Paul reminds us what we really are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 29. Look at it there in your notes. Look what he says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That is, when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Perhaps you can relate to that. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. In other words, we're nothing without God. And yet, in His great love, God chose us to continue the mission that Jesus began. And so let us acknowledge a truth. Let us acknowledge we are nothing without God, and let us then go beyond that, and let us acknowledge that our greatest need is the power of God unleashed on our lives and on our church. Do you remember the state of the apostles immediately after the death of Jesus Christ? They were timid. 
These guys were fearful. They were gloomy, to say the least. And they're certainly not thinking about how to proclaim the gospel with boldness. They're worried about just surviving another day without the Jewish authorities finding out that they're associated with the man that they just crucified. Remember just a few days earlier, Peter couldn't even muster up enough courage to identify with Jesus the night before his crucifixion and instead denied him three times before the rooster crowed. And the rest of the apostles, except John, didn't even come near the cross of their dying Lord, their leader, the one they had been following for three years. They basically abandoned him. These disciples were fearful, they're gloomy, and some of them began to even drift back to their former occupations as fishermen. And yet, they were to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. How could this possibly be true? Well, as you begin to read Acts here, especially even beginning in Acts 1, you begin to see a change taking place in this ragtag band of disciples. And after Acts 2, these same disciples are now filled with boldness. They're filled with courage in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. These disciples move from doom and gloom to boldness and confidence. They move, as we saw last Sunday, from mission impossible to mission possible. So what changed? What made the difference? Listen, God's power made the difference. These disciples would soon be clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus promised. And this supernatural power would totally transform this band of disciples. It would transform these weak, timid, despised Galileans. And it would empower them to proclaim the gospel with conviction and confidence and folks, listen, this same power will do the same for us. So how then do we unleash, if you will, God's power in our lives and on our church? Well, I see three principles here, three truths that I'd like for you to see as well here in Acts 1 that we can apply to our lives, to our church today. The first principle is this. Unleashing God's power requires immediate obedience. If we want to unleash the power of God in our lives and on our church, it requires immediate obedience. How did the apostles prepare for the promise of the Holy Spirit? They prepared with immediate, say it with me, obedience. Remember, before his ascension, Jesus commanded his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, where they would then be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Jesus repeats this promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he tells them that they will receive power with the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so, motivated by this promise that Jesus gives them, the promise of the Father, the promise to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, the apostles obeyed Jesus immediately. Luke tells us here in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where they saw the ascension of Jesus Christ, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So the disciples, what they did next is they walk three quarters of a mile from the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of the Kidron Valley 
to the city of Jerusalem. And for those who are curious, I know there's some of you out there like that, when Luke says it was a Sabbath day's journey, you may be wondering, what in the world does that mean? Well, he's referring to a Jewish tradition that restricted walking on the Sabbath day to approximately 2,000 paces, or three-quarters of a mile. That's all it means. It was a Sabbath day journey from where they were on the Mount of Olives, where they saw the ascension of Christ, to the city of Jerusalem. But here's what I want you to really notice about the disciples' obedience. I want you to take note of where they returned. This is the significance of their obedience. Look at it on, in your notes here on the screen. The disciples returned to Jerusalem and not Galilee. You say, now why is that a big deal? What's the significance of that? Well, think through this with me for a moment. Galilee is where most of these disciples are from. The region of Galilee. Galilee, in other words, is where their families are, their homes are, their occupations are. Galilee, listen to me, is where it's safe and secure for these disciples. Galilee is where life is most comfortable. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is the last place these disciples wanted to go. Why? Think about it. This is the city where Jesus has just been crucified, and the men who put Jesus to death a few weeks earlier were still in power. So the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, listen, if they kill Jesus, they're probably going to kill us. After all, we're his disciples, his followers. We're associated with this guy. Jerusalem is no longer a safe city. And if you were a follower of Jesus, any place on earth was safer than Jerusalem. So getting out of town seemed like a pretty good idea to most of these guys. But Jesus commanded them to do what? He commanded his disciples to return to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they did. They obeyed immediately. Why is that so significant? Because if they didn't obey, listen, it would show to themselves, among themselves, and more importantly to those around them, it would show a lack of faith in their God. It would show a lack of faith in God's plan. It would show a lack of courage. It would reveal a fear for what man might do to them. By staying in Jerusalem, Jesus forces them to confront their human fears and to trust in the God who is sovereign over all. Luke tells us that Jesus commanded the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't an option. This wasn't a suggestion. It was God telling his servants here what to do, even though, it didn't make any sense to them. After all, the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. They'd never seen this before, this demonstration that Jesus was promising to them. It didn't make sense to return to Jerusalem. It didn't make a lick of sense. And by the way, it's interesting, Jesus never told them exactly how long to wait in Jerusalem. 
for the Holy Spirit to come. He just tells them to wait in Jerusalem where you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's it. No other details. Only not many days from now, which could mean a few days, a week, or even a month. Have you discovered in your own Christian life, your walk with the Lord, that because God is God and we're not, that sometimes God does, actually oftentimes God does things that make little sense to us? There are times in the Christian life when God's only command is to wait. And when those moments come, God rarely explains himself or makes the big picture clear. And all of this simply reminds us that in the end, our God is sovereign. And he chooses the times and the places of life. And he sets the path for each of his children. And he doesn't consult us in advance. Our only job then is to do what? Is to obey. And if you're wondering, well, what has God told me to do? Open the Word of God. Open your Bible. He has outlined it. He has told us what to do and what to be as Christ followers. There is no confusion about that. Our only job as Christ followers is to obey and not later, but immediately. If we want to unleash the power of God on our life, we must be obedient Christ followers in all areas of our life. Why? Because when we are not obeying, well, the implication is we are what? We're disobeying. Disobedience to God is sin. And what does sin do to the power of the Spirit within us? Quenches that power. We become callous and over time if we don't deal with that sin to the Holy Spirit. That can happen as individuals. That can happen church-wide. If we want God's power to be unleashed upon us, we must be an obedient church, obedient Christ followers. Number two, unleashing God's power requires spiritual unity. It requires spiritual unity. When the disciples returned to Jerusalem, where did they stay? After all, there wasn't the Jerusalem Inn. There wasn't the Hampton Inn or Fairfield Inn or whatever your favorite hotel is. Luke tells us in verse 13 here, look at it. Look what he says. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Now, upper rooms in that day and age and that culture were kind of like our living rooms, kind of like the equivalent. It was basically a place where families and friends could gather together. No one knows for sure, but the disciples may have stayed in the upper room of a house that belonged to one of the disciples named John Mark. Or it may have been, listen, it may have been the same upper room where Jesus served these same disciples the Lord's Supper. Or it may be that the two upper rooms here are one in the same. They're at the same place. We don't know for sure, but if this is correct, just think. The Holy Spirit was given to these disciples in the same room in which Jesus first promised him back in John chapter 14, verse 16. One thing we do know for sure is that it must have been a large room where they were staying because soon 120 people would squeeze in to this room. 
Notice what it says in verses 13 through 15. It says, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then in verse 15, it's added this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and then he have in parentheses, altogether the number of names was about 120. So who was united together in this upper room? Well, Luke tells us specifically. Let me briefly break it down and just make some observations about each of this. Number one, notice the 11 apostles were there. The 11 apostles were there. Jesus chose 12 apostles, but Judas defected when he betrayed Jesus. We'll look at the story of Judas next Sunday. If you've ever wondered about that, you've got to come back next Sunday. It's an interesting, fascinating story. That left 11 listed here. Peter comes first, as he always does, followed by the two brothers, James and John. In fact, John wrote five books in the New Testament and was exiled to the island of Patmos, where James, while James was put to death by King Herod. There's a few other disciples listed. Let me just highlight the list also includes Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. You also have Simon, who is this political zealot. And finally, there's another Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, but Judas, the son of James. And of these 11 disciples, we might simply say that if Jesus was going to conquer the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ through such unlikely men, it was not due to anything in and of themselves, but only by the power of God working through them. These weren't necessarily bad guys bad men, but they weren't high on anyone's list of movers and shakers in the Jerusalem world that day. These men would indeed go on to turn the world upside down with the gospel, which reminds us that God can do incredible things through ordinary people just like us. If he, he can use a band of disciples like these guys, listen, he can use a band of believers like us when the Holy Spirit's power is unleashed on us. Then you find who else was in the upper room, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other women were there. Now we can't say for sure who these women are except for the mother of Mary. We only know from the Gospels that women made up a large part of Jesus' following from the very beginning of his ministry, which means, listen to this, women, ladies here, which means Jesus values women. Let me say that again. Jesus values women. Amen. We should all say amen to that. Jesus proclaimed a liberating message that lifted women from despair and shame to freedom and fulfillment. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus traveled throughout Israel, and a group of women whose lives had been changed followed him from place to place. In fact, they even provided support for Jesus and his disciples from their own means. And so no doubt, many of those same women are in the upper room with these 11 apostles. Now, it may also interest you to know that this is the very last time that Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, she became a follower of her own son, the Lord Jesus. And she joined the disciples in worshiping him, in praying to him. Listen, there is no evidence in the New Testament that anyone ever prayed to Mary. Or that anyone ever called her the mother of God. Or assigned her a special role in the church. All of that came many, many, many years later and rests more on tradition of men than on anything you read in the Bible. Who else was there? I think it's fascinating that you find the brothers of Jesus were there in that upper room, united together with these disciples. Perhaps it comes as a surprise for some to know that Jesus even had brothers some religions teach a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is the idea that she and Joseph never had any sexual relations and that she never gave birth to anyone besides Jesus. Listen, this verse, and there are other verses that support this, but this one in particular clearly, decisively refutes that theory. It's also important to note that during Jesus' lifetime, his family, let me tell you, they didn't quite know what to make of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that at one point, Jesus' family, his brothers, the rest of his family, they thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was out of his mind. And in John 7, Jesus' brothers are not yet believers. And evidently, at some point in time, they came to a personal faith in Jesus Christ after his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. Which tells us two things here, if I can just make application on this. First, it tells us, listen, that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faith in Jesus. So don't take anything for granted. In other words, just because you come to church Sunday after Sunday, and just because you hear the gospel proclaimed, hear the stories of Jesus, does not guarantee your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It also tells us that those who are unbelievers today may come to Christ tomorrow. So don't ever give up on someone who seems far from Christ in their life. Don't give up on your loved ones and friends. You keep praying for them. You keep witnessing, because just like Jesus' brothers in due time, God may open their eyes, open their heart to where they receive Jesus Christ. And then we find that the remaining disciples were there. Now we don't know exactly when these remaining disciples joined this initial group of believers, what we do know is that at some point before the Holy Spirit came, there were about 120 Christ followers united together in this upper room. And perhaps this group included other Galilean believers. Maybe Nicodemus was there, the one we read about, the Pharisee, uh, in John chapter 3. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea was there. He was the one who bought, uh, buried Jesus, uh, along with other disciples who had met the Lord on the road to Emmaus. The wonderful thing here to note about these disciples who are gathered together, who are united together, is that they are in one accord with one another. They were a united people. They were together. And there was a bond in unity among them. They were of one mind, united around one purpose. To continue the mission 
Jesus began. Listen, we can say an awful lot about these disciples, especially these 11 disciples. But perhaps the, the most significant thing to say is that these disciples were in one accord with one another. In fact, this phrase, one accord, appears multiple times in the book of Acts. It's a key component to what God does through them in proclaiming the gospel. These same disciples, it is interesting, they are no longer asking the question they used to ask, which was, who is the greatest among us? They're no longer seeking to sit on the left or the right side of Jesus Christ. On his, but they are, there is no arguing, there's no quarreling or envy among them. Rather, they live together as brothers in Christ. These disciples were practicing what David wrote in Psalm 133 when he says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling down on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Here's the point. God will pour out his blessing where there is spiritual unity among his people. And what is the blessing? What's one of the greatest blessings, man? It's having the Spirit of the living God poured out upon us as a church so that we may be strengthened by His power and we may be comforted by His presence. Therefore, we must stop and we've got to ask ourselves, are we united in one accord? Are we as a church united around Jesus Christ? Are we united around the mission that He has given to us? The mission of making disciples, the mission of proclaiming the gospel. Listen, we want to be like this church, how they are described at the end of Acts 4. They're described as being in one heart and one mind, with the result that much grace and much power came upon them. That's why we need spiritual unity. That's why we should pray, God, protect the unity of this church here. We should never be one who is causing disunity among our family here. Obviously, we're human beings, and so there are going to be times when that happens, and when it does, we should seek to reconcile that, to make it right. So we've seen that unleashing God's power requires immediate obedience and spiritual unity. And then last, number three, Unleashing God's power requires concerted prayer. Concerted prayer. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. And what did they do while they waited for the Holy Spirit to come? Notice what they did in Acts 1, verse 14. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now, I've been a Christian for 37 years. Long time. Some of you may be able to relate to that. And I'll be honest, I still find prayer to be an enormous challenge. Real prayer is hard work that involves the mind, the soul, heart, and the will. And when I consider Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing, and then look at my own life, it discourages me somewhat because all too often I seem to cease 
without praying. And yet we see here in Acts that prayer is always the first stage in God's plan to change the world. In the words of S.D. Gordon, we can do many things once we have prayed, but we can do nothing until we have prayed. Ian Bounds has written in his book on prayer, the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer, and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Charles Spurgeon described prayer this way, prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. There's three characteristics of these disciples here, the 120 that are gathered in the upper room, three characteristics of their praying that I want to show you. First of all, their praying was unanimous. Luke says these all continued with one accord in prayer. So here's an overlooked secret to the early church. It's interesting. Over and over again, Luke stresses that what these disciples did, they did together. All of them, united, unanimous. Listen, I'm all for praying alone. Going to a solitary place, in your car, in the bathroom at home, wherever you can find that solitary place where you get away and you have your quiet time with God. Listen, Jesus did that. He modeled it for us, and we need to do that on an individual level. We need to pray on our own, but that's not the only kind of prayer the Bible talks about. There is also a time and place for God's people to come together and pray together. Often, though, it takes a calamity or a major event to bring the church together in prayer. If you were here in 2002, then you remember how we as a church family, we came together to pray. And back then we prayed about my transition from youth pastor to your pastor now. We came together and we prayed. In fact, we took almost nine months to pray about it. If you were here in 2007, then you remember how we came together as a church family and prayed about raising $400,000 in the Shama campaign to renovate two of these buildings back here. And we prayed because if the Lord didn't provide, there was not going to be a renovation. And if you were here just a few years ago in 2013, then you remember how we came together to pray for those in our church family who were suffering from disease and death. How it seemed like that fall, the disease of cancer and death just fell upon our church. And we came together and we prayed. We also came together just this last month at our very first Ignite Praise and Prayer time to pray together for our church. And many of you have come to our Celebrate Unplugs to pray together for our missionaries, which is at Sunday night at the end of our World Outreach Conferences. And even now, many of us come together in our grow groups to pray together for our church and to pray for one another. Here's the point. Never underestimate the importance of praying together. God intends for His people to gather together in order to pray together. Second, their praying was continuous. Luke says, all, says these all continued with one accord in prayer. 
One other Bible translation says they all join together constantly in prayer. One commentator says this means they stuck to praying, which simply means there was a commitment to the praying. It means that when they prayed, they were deadly serious about it and nothing could stop them. It means they kept on praying with all their might without fainting or giving up. In other words, they prayed with passion. They prayed with persistence. They prayed with perseverance. And then third, their praying was harmonious. Luke says these all continued with one accord in prayer. Luke uses, in fact, a a particular Greek word to stress the harmony of their prayers which is translated here in our English with one accord. It's a musical term that means to strike the same notes together. Now, I'm sure most of us here, we all know what it is to listen to a choir sing and how the music is beautiful. It's lovely when everyone is singing on key, singing harmoniously. And then without warning, someone hits the wrong note. And it just takes you back. It's a jarring sound. And it, it's just like, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Whoa, who messed that up? Well, when these disciples prayed together, let me tell you, there was no wrong notes. There was no ugly attitudes. There was no pointing fingers, no pity parties, no gossip stories, no secrets being told about someone behind their back. This is the beauty of praying together with one accord. Have you ever noticed that when people don't like each other, they can't pray together very long? Either you'll stop criticizing or you'll stop praying because you can't do both at the same time. But when we pray together with one accord, it's one of the most beautiful sounds you will ever hear. Let me give you an illustration of this. Many of you have participated in our Celebrate Unplugs. We're on Sunday night at the end of the World Out Celebration. We gather downstairs in the multi-purpose room and we sit around tables and we stand and we lay hands on our missionary partners. And as a church family, there's probably anywhere from 8 to 12 gathered around a missionary family at that table. And all at once, we begin to pray for them. Not silently, but aloud. And so one person will start praying. And then you have another person over at this table start praying. And then you have another person over at this table start praying. And when one's done, another one picks up. And when that person's done, another person picks up. And I don't know how many have ever done this, where you just kind of step back a little bit, and then you listen. And you hear the prayers of God's people praying together in one accord. It's one of the most beautiful sounds you will ever hear. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many can testify to that? Yes. It happened again just last month at our Ignite. We have another one planned coming up on Palm Sunday, an opportunity for us to gather together to pray together. It's a beautiful sound. I encourage you to be a part of it. So what do we learn from this group of 120 disciples committed to continuing the mission that Jesus began? We learn, here's what we learn, that the greatest need of our church today is simply the power of God unleashed on our church. And that will only happen as we live in obedience to Jesus Christ. 
as we worship in spiritual unity and as we pray together with one accord. Now, there is a flip side to all this. Because if we don't do these things, we will not have the power of God unleashed upon us. Dr. John Lloyd Ogilvy writes in his book, Drumbeat of Love, listen to this, I quote his words, I have never known a contentious group to receive the Holy Spirit, nor have I ever seen a church in which division and disunity prevailed receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. If we want power from the Holy Spirit as individuals, we need to do a relational inventory. Everyone forgiven? Any restitutions to be done? Any need to communicate healing to anyone? As congregations, we cannot be empowered until we are of one mind and heart, until we love each other as Christ has loved us, and until we heal all broken relationships. The price seems high, but it's a bargain price for what can happen through Pentecost power. I love that because it's so true. And so I end with these three questions for application. Am I living in obedience to our Lord and His commands, or am I living in disobedience? Am I united with our church to continue the mission Jesus began, or am I trying to do my own agenda, my own thing? Am I committed to praying together with my church family? Now, as we come to a close here, we're going to do something a little different in our response time. As you know, normally our response time, the praise team comes up and they sing a chorus and you're given an opportunity to pray silently right where you're seated. But to put this into practice, we're going to take about three minutes, five minutes here, and we're going to pray together. And hopefully as we pray together, we're going to do it with one accord. Now I know we may have some guests here. Maybe you're a fairly new believer. You never prayed. You're not familiar with praying. Listen. I don't want you to feel any pressure that you have to pray or you even have to pray out loud. If that's you, I invite you just to sit where you're at and, and just listen to the prayers of God's people being raised up to his throne. But I invite you to pray aloud, not boisterously, but maybe find somebody you're sitting next to. The praying here we're going to do is not long. We only, we're only going to take a few minutes. And you're like, what do I pray for? Well, you can, you can use the 40 days of prayer as a guide, or you can simply pray, Lord, let your power come down on this church. Protect the unity of this church family. Lord, help us to be a body of believers that obeys you immediately in all areas of our life. You can pray that for yourself even. That's what we're praying about. Does that make sense? And so I invite you to do now. The, no music, just in the quietness, and pray aloud. Right where you're sitting, if you want to come to this altar and pray too, that's fine. But just a few minutes, and then when we're done, I'll close this out in prayer.